Let's give the worship team a round of applause. They've done so well. That was so beautiful. Thank you, guys. Just while they're uh, setting up behind me and getting ready for the message, uh, I want to say hello to everybody joining us online. And uh, we're so glad that you're doing that. And to 33 Congregation and the South Congregation, if you're a visitor here this morning, I know Jenny has already given you some welcome, but we're so glad that you have chosen to come. Just by show of hands, we're not going to do anything weird don't worry, but how many of you are on holiday today? You're visiting on holiday? Let's give them a big round of applause. Welcome to you. So good. Um, a few of you have been uh, fairly new over the last few months, and you may or may not be aware that uh, we have two uh, of our congregations joined together right now, which is the 33, which is where you are at the moment, and also the South Congregation. South Congregation normally meets in the Mission, in the Lower Mission, in uh, Bellevue Creek Elementary School there. We've been there for almost 20 years. And we're out of the building right now while the school district do some renovations before we move back in in, the, uh, in October 2nd. That's our kind of hard launch. So for all of you to know, over the next couple of months, we're gearing up towards what that looks like and what, that will, uh, what will that mean for both congregations. Because uh, we encourage the South uh, congregations to really get involved in all areas of the church life on 33. I call them the, uh, and I'm, I don't mean this as a derog derogatory thing at all, but they're kind of the Sunday chores. You know, the things that we need to do to make you feel expected and accepted. You know, the welcome, the worship team. These are wonderful ministries that the South have gotten involved in over the last uh, few months. And so as we transition back to, and for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm not only the executive pastor, but I also pastor that congregation along with the team. Um, as we transition back into the mission area come the fall, then there's going to be some big gaps. And, um, and so on August, no, yes, August 14th, uh, we're going to be setting up some opportunities out in the uh, foyer for you to volunteer for the fall. Uh, so August 14th, both for the 33 congregation as well as South congregation, uh, we're going to have Connect Desk specifically pointed towards encouraging you to fully engage when it comes to our fall, uh, really important, exciting time of year. So that's August 14th. Between now and then, can I encourage you to keep an eye out, especially if you're in the South community, keep an eye out on social media, on, uh, on the website, willapartchurch.com slash south. You will see that starting to be uh, populated with information about what the next couple of months looks like. But more than that, if you can all pray, please, uh, this goes smoothly. Um, we've been working hard, the team especially, Nick and Jenny and Courtney and the wider team have been working so hard to make this uh, in faith happen. Um, the school districts are ready for us, which we're grateful for. But please pray. Please come tonight with Willow One Prayer. Uh, we're going to be praying for this whole transition. We're going to be praying for the fall. It's going to be an exciting season. We're believing God for new wine in new wineskins. And um, we're really excited about what God's going to do. So please keep an eye out for that as we, uh, as we transition over there. Okay. You know, I'm going to, uh, over the, uh, when we, it's a kind of a normal practice for us at the South now, uh, is when we read the Word of God, we're going to stand. The reason we do that is because as a culture, we stand for things that we honor. 
We stand for the national anthem. We stand for somebody that we want to honor. We stand for the graduating class. Uh, we stand up and shake somebody's hand. That's the way my dad taught me. You stand up when you shake somebody's hand. Yes, dad. We stand in honor of all these things. And so I think that it's a good practice uh, for us to stand in honor of the word of God. Uh, so I'd invite you to do that now as we read from Genesis chapter 7. Let's stand together and um, let's read. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and the kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner. I will give you an, as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. This is the word of God. Please uh, take your seats. So good. We live in a world that is under constant review. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I, I haven't got into the habit of it, but I have left Google reviews depending on uh, my experience. Uh, I know that the marketing world would say that people tend to leave Google reviews when they want to complain. You know, the five star, I'm going to give this one. If preferably, I'm going to give it half a star or I'm going to give it five star. And so we tend to review our world through this lens of, is this worthy of a five star review? Maybe you've been to a restaurant, you've had a great experience, you had a brilliant server, and you want to leave them a five star review. Maybe you've never left a review. Businesses love it when they get five star reviews uh, because they don't actually have any control. They can't edit it. If you leave them a one star, that's it. Google, it is up there forever as far as Google are concerned. And so businesses are really keen on getting five-star reviews or part of their algorithm in order to rank higher up on the web page. It's a really big deal. The interesting thing though is the psychology behind it. Because for us to be able to assess whether something is a one-star or a two-star, we need to have an innate built-in idea of what five-star looks like. Otherwise, what are we comparing it to? Does that make sense? We have this idea of what five star is, and that's how we know that something's only one star. And so it's kind of interesting when you Google around this idea of some of the reviews. I, I looked up uh, one review, and it, and it made me laugh, this one. This is from E. Mailman, five star, it works. Uh, reviewed in the United States on January 23rd, 2021. It's a filter for a vacuum cleaner. It works. It didn't cost much. It fit well. Dear God, has my life come to this? I'm now leaving reviews on Amazon for wet dry vac filters. I remember being young, having dreams, having hopes, having desires for something better. Now this is what I'm doing on a Saturday morning. I love that. I love it. We have this idea of what five star looks like and that's how we know what a one star is. I wonder if we surveyed our world I wonder what our world's rating would look like. 
I think there are some days when we feel it's like this. We'll give it a solid one star, maybe. Maybe a one star. And how do we know that? It's because we innately know what a five star should feel like. We know what a five-star relationship should look like. We know what a five-star community should look like. We've maybe never even experienced it. We just innately know it's been called human. We just know that there's something better. A five-star world that flourishes and thrives. And that's exactly the way that God created it to be. And we have this echo inside of us from Genesis 1 through to 2 uh, where we, we've got this innate memory of what a five-star feeling should feel like in our world. Otherwise, how do we know it's only got one star? We have something inside that we can compare it to. If you're in a relationship or a marriage or a friendship, if you're at a workplace and you just think, man, this is not the way it should be, how do you know? What are you comparing it to? Maybe something someone else has experienced, perhaps, but you just know inside. And it's because we've been created to live in a five-star world. In fact, if I could continue the stars all the way through, that's really what the new heaven and new earth is going to be. Just place them on affinity and fill them all up with gold stars. That's what the new heaven and new earth is going to be for those who love and follow Jesus. We have a built-in feeling of that. And in Genesis 1 and 2, you can actually read God putting that into place. And then from Genesis 3, it all goes to part. It it gets broken. We decide we're going to follow our own story rather than God's story. Our own narrative rather than God's narrative. And Adam and Eve make these decisions that then, as we're told right at the beginning, there's a seed, a generational flow through. Where this echo that we call sin just leaves things broken. But we still remember what five star feels like. Five star was Eden. Five star was paradise. And now we have this spiraling disorder with a collective memory that echoes inside every one of us. Whether you're a Christian here this morning, whether you're a new Christian, whether you're somebody who's maybe a bit skeptical but you're open, whether you're an angry skeptic, I don't know. We can all agree we know things should be better. We all agree that we have a sense of what five star is like. Question is, is how do we get to that? I used this quote a few weeks ago from Jonathan Pennington, the historian, theologian, says this, all human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the desire for life and flourishing, individually and corporately. Every person has a powerful, relentless drive to experience shalom, peace, and an interconnected joy and beauty that God has put into creation through right relationships with God and our families, with our communities, with the physical creation. This is because shalom was God's original design and creation. And as we will see, restoration of shalom is his design and redemption. We all want to thrive. We're all working towards it. We all long for it. We all have a desire for it to be back the way it should be. And the good news is, friends, that's exactly the same with God. That's how God wants it to be as well. And the whole of the Bible is the narrative and the story of how God's plan and promise to bring order and joy back into the world, back into our lives, back into our families, into our communities and neighborhoods. That's what the whole story is about. This is why we call the series The Jesus Code, because the code throughout the Bible is God's promise and plan through Jesus. This grand rescue plan, a plan to get us back to thriving, a plan to get us back to five plus infinity stars. That's God's plan. 
That's what the Bible is about. The question is, is how is he going to do it? And we get an insight into that this morning. As we read the story of Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons. Had many sons, had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. Let's all shake a leg. Some of you just involuntarily moved your leg then. I know, I could sense it. Father Abraham, the God... This is amazing. I want you to remember this line. This is not my line. You'll see where the quote comes from for a second. But God places his own deity on the line. He places his own deity on the line to back this promise up. This promise that there will be a day when we're back to five star plus infinity. He lays his deity on the line because God looks for a family We saw you, we've got this first 11 chapters of Genesis that, for the most part, is pretty chaotic. You see sin spiraling out of control, people making decisions that sin is now going even down onto a molecular level. It is part of humanity. And then God steps in and he reaches out towards a man called Abram. And you can read about it in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's a powerful statement that God is making here. And it surrounds this one word, through. God's intention to bring salvation and rescue and and back to the way things should be, he looks for a family. Now, if I said to you, what is God's plan for salvation, all the good Christians in the room, like Sunday school class, would go, Jesus. And that is true. But notice that God doesn't jump ahead and immediately send uh, Jesus to the world. He looks for a family. He looks for a man. And you see, this is a powerful and important uh, principle through the scriptures, is that God wants to bring blessing to the world through you and me, Christian friend. His plan hasn't changed. His plan for blessing, his plan for generosity, his plan for love, his plan to show a hurting and broken world the love of God and Jesus is you and me, Christian friend, through you, blessed through you. Is your neighborhood, this is just a little trail just for us to ponder, maybe journal on, is your family, is your neighborhood, is your workplace, is your city blessed because you live in it? Regardless of age, there's no, we all know how old Abraham was, right? Abraham refers to his own wife as near to dead. That's how old she is. If you look at the original language, she's practically dead, is what he says in front of his wife. What a brave man Abraham was. She probably was like, yeah, that's true, but I can still get you, Abraham. Just be careful. So Abraham is being promised by God to be a blessed. He's going to be blessed in order to be a blessing. God's plan for redemption and rescue is still through humanity. We are made for a purpose regardless of our age. And then God binds himself to Abraham, to Israel, and then to the world through Israel. So God binds himself in a powerful act that God puts his deity on the line 
to back this promise up. Blessing is coming. How does he do it? This is an amazing piece of scripture. You can read about it in detail in Genesis 15. I'm not, I'm not going to take you there. And it's a little bit bloody. You've had, your, you, you've had your kind of certificate movie warning. Okay? Because what God does is he makes a covenant. And this picture of a covenant that God place, puts, does with Abraham is a very, very common practice that Abraham would have been used to and would have understood immediately. What would have happened is a greater king would have had a covenant with a lesser king. In other words, it's a a kind of a transactional relationship. I will do this, you do this back. It's a a transaction. It's a a, a mutual agreement, if you will. And then the greater king and the lesser king would get together. And what they would do is they would sacrifice animals. And then they would cut them in two, creating a a blood-filled path in between the two, the greater king then would walk down ceremoniously down the middle of all this blood and gore, and the lesser king would follow after them, declaring using every sense, just, if you will, just picture it just for a second. Every sense in your body would be experiencing this covenant. Everything. And it was memorable. They walked the path together. They sealed the commitment. It's where we get the language, seal the deal from. They sealed the covenant. They sealed the commitment. I will do this, you will do this. I will do this, you will do this. And the lesser king would understand that the greater king meant business. They are literally saying, may I be cut in two, may I cease to be if I break this covenant. So the, the, the animals that were in pieces around them, they're saying, look, I will become like these if I break this covenant. It's really hard for us to wrap our minds around the significance of this action. Because I don't know about you, but when we bought our house 14 years ago, the real estate didn't bring a bunch of animals on the back of his truck. Okay, okay. We need to do a covenant agreement. Let's get sacrificing. You know, let's walk down the center of this blood-filled path together because you're now committing to buying this house. You've all gone very quiet because you're probably picturing this. Maybe a handshake, maybe a bit of a scribble. And let's be honest, sometimes our signatures aren't there. There you go. And that's it. You're in covenant with the bank or with the whatever it might be. At that time, they got busy with a bunch of animals sealed in their memory. May I be cut in two. May I cease to be. I want you to remember that. May I be cut in two. May I cease to be if I break this covenant. Because God put his deity on the line. God put his deity on the line. So as we think about this whole intriguing story, there's a few reflections, a few observations that I want to suggest to you this morning that are worth for us whether you're a Christian or thinking about Christianity, wherever you are in your walk with Jesus, here are some things that I'm excited to share with you and remind you of and to maybe get you to think about. The first one is this. Qualifications don't count. And all the students in the room go, see? Mom, Dad, my grades don't. Well, it's not grades anymore. They don't do grades, do they? I don't even know what the letters are that they use. I mean, I grew up with... 
A plus A, A minus, B plus B. How many of you know what I'm talking about? See, your grandkids or kids, that, that will be foreign to them. It's, I'm not going to go down the tra- rabbit trail on why that is. But that, that kind of the qualifications, we, we think you need to be qualified. And let's be honest. If you turn up at the hospital, you go to the doctor's surgery, you get a lawyer or a teacher, or that you want them to be qualified. But when it comes to God and who he seeks out and who he's willing to cut a covenant with, qualifications don't count. See, Abram, this is before he became Abraham, Abraham had no qualifications. In fact, many Bible scholars would suggest that he was, uh, and they wouldn't use this word in medieval kind of ancient Israel, but he was a, a pagan worshiper that... There's a lot of evidence to say, you can read about it in Joshua, that his family and potentially Abraham himself was a moon worshiper. Just think about that for a second. Because as Christians, we assume that Abraham was like Noah, that had his, he was already, he had his holiness, he had his obedience, and God recognized it. There is no evidence in the scriptures to suggest that Abraham brought anything to the table, not even his worship, when it came to him being called by God. In fact, there's failure after failure in Abraham's line, and then failure after failure in Abraham's life. He comes full of doubts. Friends, he sold his wife twice. Twice. I mean, I can't even wrap my head around that. Like the, and then his son does the same thing. This is a man that you would not put on the Hall of Fame if we were looking at it through human terms. And what I'm blessed with is the Bible is a story of people who mess up again and again and again. And like Luke said last week, you look at the Bible, if it was put together by a bunch of people who were just seeking to control, you would not include most of the Bible in the Bible. Because the Bible is filled with people who mess up. Not just once, but time. He sold his wife. I was expecting more of a reaction. Like, he's failure. Potential moon worshiper. God chose him. The Bible is filled with people who mess up, like us. It's filled with people who are not qualified. People who are not noble. People who don't make good choices. And if I was going to do a survey of the honest in the room and the honest online, is that not us? We're not noble. Our life has got good choices in it, but there's a lot of poor choices. Choices that you don't even want to think about, never mind talk about. Decisions that you've made in your past, thoughts that you've had, words that you've said, words that you haven't said, things that you've done, things that you've not done, sins of omission, sins of commission, things that you've done, things that you haven't. You see, God looks for people. So Abraham wasn't qualified or noble. He didn't make good choices. But I'm so grateful that with another narrative through the scripture as you look, is not only does God seek out the unqualified, but he also makes sure that we know that his plan and his promise and his love is not rooted in them. It's rooted in him. Because we certainly can't look at Abram and go, oh yeah, I can see why God chose him. 
Any more than you would look at my life, or maybe I could look at your life, Christian friend, and say, oh, I can see why God chose you. Because story after story is God. God showing his faithfulness, his love, and his beautiful choice, even after Abraham messes up. Even after getting the promise. Even after this whole covenantal ceremony, he messes up. He tries to expedite God's plan. He ends up sleeping with one of his servants in order to try and get that child that God had promised him. That God, I hear you, but you don't seem to be following through in the way that I want you to, so I'm just going to take control of this situation, and he forces it. So even after God, that Abraham messes up, when we would perhaps, if we were God saying, you know what, I made a horrible mistake. I'm going to look for another family who aren't worshipping moons and selling their wives and, and then sleeping around in order to expedite the plan of God. I'm going to look for somebody else. Thanks, Abraham. It's been okay so far. Let's not carry on. But God doesn't do that. In fact, as we read right at the beginning in Genesis 17, God doubles down. He doubles down on his promise. It's very easy when you read the scriptures to disconnect ourselves it's very easy to read this from a disconnected point of view and go, oh, well, that's a nice story, Father Abraham and many sons. And put yourself in the story for a second. That God has come to you and said, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. That you have witnessed God with this covenantal ceremony. That you've seen visions. That you are totally won over by God. That he has wooed your heart and you're like, I'm in. I'm going to do whatever this God says. I'm in. Because obviously his potential pagan worship didn't carry on after God called him. I should make that clear. He's like, I, I will follow after you, God. He's, he's in. Hebrews 11, hero of our faith, he's there. Then there's this mess up after mess up after mess up after mess up. He tries to sell his wife. God doubles down on his promise and his love. We all need to hear this this morning. Some of you really need to hear this. That you have messed up upon messed up upon messed up upon messed up. And you are a Christian. And you know deep down inside Satan will tell you everything he possibly can to disconnect you from your faith and say, how could you? Really? You call yourself a Jesus follower and you did that? Do you know what God does? Doubles down. He doubles down on his promise. I will make my covenant between me and you. I will greatly increase your numbers. He's doubling down. He's turning the amp up, Abram. You will be the father of many nations. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. Not only does he now use the word covenant, he's saying it's going to be an everlasting, eternal covenant. That this is going to surpass you, Abraham, and it's going to go into eternity. And people in Kelowna in 2022 are going to be talking about your name because of what I'm going to do through you and your family. He doubles down in your brokenness, in your disconnect, in your shame, in your guilt, in your horror at yourself. God doubles down with his love, his mercy, and his reminder of his promise because he seeks out the unqualified. The day that we stand in front of God and go, yeah, I deserve this, that's when really you should be booking in to see a pastor. P. Collins at willapartchurch.com. That's when we're in trouble. 
God doubles down. God wants Abraham to know that his plan is not based on Abraham's ability to get things right. Okay, here's a revelation for, for the culture. Nobody in this room, obviously, but the culture in 2022, it is not all down to you. You are not all that. You are not all powerful. And I actually believe that the sooner that our culture and our hearts turns towards the idea that we need God, the quicker we will find healing, the quicker we will find strength, that I am not able to do life, that I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps when it comes to spirituality and health and healing. I can't do it. I can't work myself into heaven. I can't work myself into blessing. God looks for the unqualified. He wants to show Abraham that, look, I chose you because you are incapable, because my power and might will be glorified in the amazing story that I'm going to fulfill through your family. You are going to mess up. Ah, so Glenn, does this mean then that I can live my life any way that I want? No, 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 because that is not what grace leads to. Grace and love of God woos us towards doing what is right. But can I tell you, if you find yourself in a position where you're in cyclical sin... It is a miserable place to be as a Christian. Take that as encouragement because that is the Spirit of God in you, longing for better. And thankfully, God doubles down with his love and his mercy and his wooing and his patience. And he draws us back to him and us as we come to him in repentance, that he fills us with a reminder of how incredible he is. But we keep trying to take control of things and trying to fix things. A few years ago, well, almost 30 years ago, Sarah and I were looking for a place to live. Uh, we were wide-eyed, engaged, and uh, just like it didn't matter where we lived, we just wanted to be together, and so we decided on a, a, on a town called Rill, and uh, Rill is in North Wales, and we found this, um, it was actually an amazing building, like three-story seafront, uh, so looking out on the, on the promenade, it all sounds very romantic. Um, and the iron windows that were, I don't know if any of you lived in houses like this where the iron windows just twist over time so you end up with a gap that you can put your hand in which was perfectly gapped so that the wind coming, the prevailing wind would always come into the gap freezing cold and damp and cold in the winter but we loved it and it cost us 50 pound a week um, and I think we were earning 40 pound a week, I don't know, something, something silly but this lovely Christian lady gave it us for a really cheap uh, cost. Her name was Alice, and she was just, she was so sweet. She loved Jesus, and she was so generous. She opened up uh, this kind of flat, as we would call it in Britain, on the second floor. It was self-contained. It was amazing. But I do remember the first time that we went there, and we went in. First of all, the thing that hit me first was the smell of intense air freshener. Uh, it kind of made you want to hit the deck and do a commando roll through, because you could almost see it. Uh, it was like, Wow. Okay, air freshener, that's the way things are going to be. And then the second thing that hit me was this really bizarre, and I've still got it seared into my memory, this really bizarre picture, uh, not real, of Jesus. Everyone calm down. Um, Jesus with his arms, blonde hair, blue eyes, classic, even though he was from Israel, with his arms out like this, with birds all over him. Just, and I remember looking at this as a, a young pastor, maybe 20 years old, going, what 
is that all about? All these multicolored birds with Jesus, blonde hair, blue eyes. I was thinking, do they think any of them pooped on him? Like, it's my way my brain works. But so then we go into her, into her area of the flat and we sit down on our best behavior because we need this flat. We sat there and, and then t- she was fussing around and she was just being so sweet. She said, we'd like a cup of tea. And so, so, yes, and she goes into the kitchen. We're sat on the couch and we're looking at the mantelpiece and the fire and there's this picture above it of a hula dance. And I'm looking at it and going, I don't know if you remember those classic 60s or 70s weird hula dance pictures. Just me, okay. Um, and Alice. <laughs> so I'm so, sat there looking at it. I'm going, something not right about this picture. So I think, all right, I think I've got time to go and inspect it a little bit closer. And you've got, you know, you've got all the, the girls and the guys and the hula dance and they're wearing bikinis, which I'm thankful for, and swimming costumes. And, and I get up and I look closer and I get closer and I go, yeah, that's not right. I'm getting a little closer and I realized that actually the original picture or painting or print actually did have, let's just say, inadequately clothed girls as part of the dance and Alice had knitted bikini tops (laughs) and stuck them on. (laughs) So I'm looking at this picture going, that is amazing. I love it. And of course, I tell Sarah, and I'm like, love, quick, look at this. It's the, I just wish it had been the time of cell phones because that would have been a definite <laughs> selfie or something. But the, the hula dance girls with knitted bikinis because Alice had looked at this picture and gone, this isn't right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some decisions to make this right. But it just something about it that was wrong. See, the picture's not right. You know what? From a distance, your life might look great. A hula dance. But the closer you get in, you realize that actually your life is just filled with patches and cover-ups, fixes and controls in the hope that nobody gets close enough to really look at you. But can I tell you that God looks and peers into our life and he sees all the patches, all the cover-ups, all the things that we're ashamed of, and he doubles down. That's the one. Choosing the unlikely, the unlovable, the unqualified. How is that possible? Because number two, the observation is this, is God walks the path alone. I don't know if you picked up on it, But in the scripture that we read, uh, sorry, that I referred to and many of you have read before, is that he puts, he doesn't expect the lesser king, Abraham, to follow him down the bloody path. He walks that blood-filled path by himself. He doesn't require Abram to bring anything to the covenant. He doesn't require him to bring anything. How do we know that? How do we know that God walks alone? Look at that. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. You will be a blessing. I will, I will. This is all down to me, Abraham. I love what R.C. Sproul says in his quote as he's paraphrasing this scripture. Abraham, I'm putting my very deity on the line here. I'm swearing to you by my holy nature. If I don't keep this word, I will no longer be God. 
God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a promise and he backs it up with that promise, which is not just to Abraham, but to all people. He makes a promise that seals with an oath based upon his own very nature. There is no conceivably higher guarantee than that. And then we see all the way through Scripture this constant pursuit of the loving God who goes after the, the unqualified, the, the, uh, the people who are, are, are overlooked, the unlovable, the, the people who are not liked. I want that one. He doubles down in his promise of love and mercy and patience all through the Scripture until we eventually get Jesus walking alone to the cross. He walks the bloody path alone. We observe it from a distance. Sometimes we sterilize it, we make it hygiene-y, and, and, and we make it kind of Easter egg-y. But the reality is, is, is it's Jesus right, right, walking the covenant path that God started in the story of Abraham. He took the walk to the cross alone. He became the crusher of the head of Satan and sin in your life alone. He became the crusher and destroyer of sin and the control it has in your life alone. So that although we might be in this cycle of sin, that we can come to him. And it's because of what Jesus did on the cross, destroying the power of sin in your life, Christian friend, that you can come back to him and you can say, I'm sorry, create in me a new heart. And he says, yes, and doubles down. The promise is real. He requires nothing from us. While we were still sinners, he walked that path. God's seeking us out while we ignore him and perhaps even deride him. Ignore him at best, run away at worst, and yet he pursues us. He's not given up on us. We struggle with this idea of grace because we live in a world of qualification. We struggle with really believing that you don't need to bring anything to the table to deserve the love of God. Because let me just deal with that for you. We don't. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we can do to deserve the love of God. But he loves us, as the Puritans used to say, he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. That's the reason that God loves us. It's a divine mystery that God would choose the likes of you and me and humanity to chase after them. We struggle with it because it seems like somehow we need to deserve it. But so, God, I messed up yesterday. How can you love me? And we look at ourselves like we would look at ourselves instead of realizing that God looks at us through the lens of his son, Jesus, and what Jesus has done. The sin destroyer, the head crusher, not the blonde hair, blue eyed, covered in finches. Jesus came and crushed the head of Satan. You don't see that on people's hallways as a photo. That'd be a good photo. He requires nothing from us. He seeks us out. And he never, ever gives up on us. Dr. Scott Hahn, Christian, recounts this story in his book. In 1998, there was a 6.9 earthquake, some of you will remember it, that struck northwest Armenia on December 7th. The quake flattened buildings and killed 25,000 people in total. A father rushes to his son's school to see whether his son was still alive. He gets to the school to find it a pile of rubble, flattened. He knows roughly where his son's classroom was on the east 
side of the building. So he rushes over to the east side and he starts pulling rocks away. Because earlier on in that day, he made a promise to his son. He said to his son, Amand, no matter what happens, Amand, I'll always be there. And as he's digging through the rubble and the rocks and he's getting, getting fingers that are all scraped and cut and bleeding, tears rushing, all the crowd around him are saying, forget it, they're all dead. Forget it, mister, they're all dead. A few help, but most don't. He dug for 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours, 36 hours. He did not stop. No matter what happens, Armand, I'll always be there. At 38 hours, he heard a muffled groan underneath the rubble. And he shouted at the top of his lungs, Armand! And he could just hear the faint response, Papa! So people now rush and start digging that same area. And that day they found 14 of the 33, stu- uh, sorry, 14 of the 33 students still alive. Can I tell you, no matter what happens, Glenn, I'll always be there. I walked that path for you then, I'll walk that path for you now. That's the love of God, constantly pursuing, constantly loving, constantly going after us because it would mean his deity itself if he was to fail to do that. That his promise hangs on the fact that he put deity on the line. That like this father, Jesus walked the path alone and God never gives up on his pursuit. And can I tell you, Christian friend, you might be feeling a little bit like that crowd when it comes to people in your life. That the rubble of life have crushed them and you can see it. Don't be the crowd that says, forget it, mister. It's too late. Always be believing that God somehow never, ever, ever gives up on his pursuit. Why? Because it's a perpetual promise as I finish. It's a perpetual promise. This promise that he gave to Abraham goes on for eternity. We read it together. Everlasting. Everlasting. It goes on into eternity. The truth of God's passion and pursuit... It goes on into eternity and we need to anchor and we find sustenance there. We find a hope there that even on our worst day, our biggest failure yet day, that God still digs through the rubble of your life, comes searching for you. You see, God constantly reminds people through the Bible of his love. He constantly refers back to the promise he made of Abraham. And then it gets to a point in the history of Israel that people remind God of his own promise. God, you said... You said that you were going to be a blessing. That's what Psalms is filled with David and other prophets reminding God of his own promise. So when you look at that child or that loved one or that brother or friend or sister or whatever it might be who you feel is just filled, covered with the rubble of life, then feel free, my Christian friend, to stand in front of God and say, God, you said... You said that you would never stop pursuing. You said that there would be a blessing. But then don't be like Abraham to try and force the plan. Because then the Hagars come into our lives. You said it's a good prayer to pray. 
Taking control and forcing it is not a good place to be. Because you end up getting bitter and frustrated at God because he's not following through in the way that you think he should. So to actually say, you said, and then take a step back and hold them with an open hand and say, God, my kids are filled and covered with rubble. I'm searching for them. I feel like my hands are covered in blood and scrapes and bruises as I try and do that. But you said, Lord. And God constantly reminds people of his promise through the Bible. And then the incredible thing is, is that God actually changes the name of Abram to Abraham. So every time Abraham hears his own name, he's reminded of the promise. It's genius. Every time. His self-talk would change because there is a turning point in Abraham's life where there's this initial failure after failure. And then you can see his faith increasing more and more and more. Because as his name has changed, the promise never changes. And he stands on the promise, not on his own control, not on his own things, not on his own house or cars or possessions or wealth or abilities or qualifications or looks or whatever else. He doesn't stand on that anymore. He stands on the promise, Abraham. Like Abraham, we often hear the promise, we doubt it, and we try and take control because that is the initial lie that Adam and Eve believed. We place our hope and security on plans that can easily end in rubble, crushing us. And as we place our attention on God himself, we start letting go. Can I tell you, while we are so focused on what we believe we have control over in our lives, our heads are down, to actually lift our eyes up, figuratively speaking, maybe literally, and look up and say, where does my help come from? My help comes from him. That Jesus, as he's pursued by Thousands of people, you can read about it in John. It says he lifts up his eyes and is filled with compassion. Can I tell you, Jesus lifted up his eyes. He sees the cross in the distance. He's filled with compassion and the pursuit. He walks the path alone so that we can lift up our eyes and we can hold all the beautiful things that God has given us to enjoy and say, Lord, these are yours. I'm not going to let them control us. I'm not going to let them control me. Because I don't want them to crush me. And it causes us to think carefully about what it is that we actually fill our lives with. And I was reading the psychology around self-talk this week. Unfortunately, I think the prosperity gospel has, has kind of tainted the idea of uh, repeating scripture. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, it's a biblical and godly thing to have scripture in our mouths and our hearts and minds all the time. Not as a leverage against God. That's the prosperity gospel. I'd like some kind of mantra or spell. If we say this scripture, then I'm going to get my Mercedes. No, it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. I've looked. <laughs> but to repeat scripture and promise is so godly because our self-talk is so detrimental sometimes. We talk to ourselves all the time, but we're unconscious of it. You're telling yourself lies all the time. We tell ourselves things that are actually contrary to what God believes. 
And Satan, our enemy, he loves to pull us down by this self-talk that we talk to ourselves about our past, present, and future all the time. Maybe it's just a reminder of something somebody else has said about you or to you, and it just gets constantly regurgitated in your subconscious, some of you in your dreams, and it's self-talk. And the reality is, is that our self-talk shapes our decisions, our desires, and our direction that, that we actually start fulfilling, and, it, and we start seeing ourselves in the way that this self-talk would dictate. Can I ask you the simple question, does what you see and say about yourself line up with the promise of God? Because that's powerful, and it's hard work. It's one brick at a time. One brick at a time. My son and I talk about reps a lot, that there are things in life that you just need to do. Like if you want to build big biceps, picking up a set of dumbbells, 10 pounders and going, okay, there you go. And then you go and look at yourself in the mirror, (laughs) ain't going to happen. Like something's wrong if you've suddenly got a big pump on because you did one bicep with a 10-pound barbell. But you start putting the reps in, over time, you build this wall, if you like, called, I shouldn't have used this as an illustration, as biceps. That's a poor illustration, but just bear with me. (laughs) The point is, is you have to put in the reps. And all you need to do is think about the brick. Because if you're always looking at the wall, you're never actually going to, you'll get discouraged because you think, and you won't bother with the brick. Because you think, man, I've got so far to go. And what we need to do on a daily basis, we need to build up a strength in our soul and our spirit, these bricks, if you like, that consist of the Bible, spending time with the Lord, meditating on Scripture, reminding yourself of the promise. God, you said, and that's a brick. Next day, let's do another brick. Next day, another brick. Because the Scripture does actually say that we're actually to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God that wills us towards that. So we're to work towards it. It's not we sit back and just expect big biceps at the end of it. We're actually meant to put the work in, put in the reps. So here's the kind of silly question, I guess. What reps do you put in in life? Well, I don't hear from God. Are you putting the reps in? Are you positioning yourself to hear from Him? Are you, are you spending time with him? I can't expect a great relationship with my wife if I'm not putting the, oh gosh, this is a bad way of looking at it, but putting the reps in. I need to position myself so I'm actually spending time with her and enjoying her presence and going on dates and filling our lives up. And that's what makes a good marriage. What do you say to yourself every day? See, God's promise is so much more powerful than our drift away from him and our struggles. God put his deity on the line, doubled down in his expression of love and promise for us. And that promise is unending. It goes on for everlasting upon everlasting. That's the promise we stand on. And so that forces us to consider what promises do we stand on? And are they everlasting after everlasting? This is a wonderfully encouraging part of the Bible because it points towards a God who says, look, I am the everlasting God. Another way that some translations put it is, I'm the ancient of days. 
love you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite Zach just to come and just start playing on the piano a beautiful song. We've not sung it before. It's one of my favorites. Um, I want to I read you. Maybe we could even show some of the lyrics behind me as I read. And, that, and, and Zach actually texted me this week. He says, you know, I'm really feeling this song would be great. He didn't know that I was preaching on what I'm preaching on. So think about that as you're looking at these words. He says, we're just going to sing it over the congregation, over our church family, and you can join in with the words. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear for this truth remains that my God is the ancient of days. This is the chorus. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, he is here with me, I am not alone. Oh, his love is sure, he knows my name. For my God is the ancient of days. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. Though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. Then my joy complete, standing face to face in the presence of the ancient of days. None above him, none before him, all of time in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. For my God is the ancient of days. Let's close our eyes. As we hear these beautiful words, I want to encourage you that maybe this is the moment, just as we've got our eyes closed, where you take a step towards God and say, God, I know that I'm a Christian, even though Satan would tell me otherwise. I love you, Jesus. But Lord, I mess up. I find myself caught. Thank you, Jesus, that when you died on the cross, you took the power of sin and death away. That it died with you. And so, Jesus, I confess. I try and do this myself forgive me forgive me Lord for this sin that I keep committing forgive me Lord for this attitude these words, these thoughts forgive me Lord for putting other things above you as priority over you thank you Jesus that you walked that path for me And all you need from me is to confess and believe. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you love me so much that you will never stop pursuing and digging into my life. So, Lord, I pray now that as we listen and as we sing this song, that, God, it truly would be a sacrifice, a point of confession and faith. And everybody who hears it online or in the, in the room, thank you, Jesus, that you put your deity on the line for me. Thank you, Jesus, my ancient of days. Thank you.